0: Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to get into the Word this morning. I'm going to give you four, I uh, uh, want to give you four thoughts from this text this morning uh, that are directly related to uh, the idea of, of, of biblical manhood or being a man of God. And just want to walk through this text. First Timothy chapter 6, context for Paul's letter to Timothy. If you remember uh, in the book of Acts, um, Timothy, this dude is a picture of faithfulness. Um, I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you what, you remember the a guy named uh, Cal, was his name Cal, that you, it came up with y'all to be strong one time, Cal, no, 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 uh, Sal, you got me, yep. we're a group of dudes from that church sitting around in a circle, and uh. And and they're tell they're going around telling you know sitting around the fire down there telling scariest story scariest thing ever happened to me you know one dude's like I got blown up you know in combat one dude I got bit by a shark one guy you know like one guy got real emotional it was like me and my dad told each other we loved each other and I was thirty years old I was like that's cool but a little bit. Feel funny you know so, but that's cool and, but then it gets around there to sal and sal goes sal was a new yorker been a christian about three years he was about 40 years old he came straight out of like the bronx or something he, he was sal he was talking he was like oh you know he was like italian and he said i got one for you circumcised at 21 hey and he walked out like this and i was like <laughs> and I, I was like Sal wins. Game over. Game over. All right, like, game over. But, uh, but Timothy, you know, you're reading along air in the book of, of Acts, and at Red Oak Church right now, we're going through the book of Acts, and you get to where Timothy gets introduced, and he comes into the scene right after there's been this really, really, like, like strong verbiage is used to describe this split, this fraction in the team between Paul and Barnabas, and so you've got a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on, and Timothy joins the team as a young young dude who's going to be trained as a pastor, and, and like Paul takes Timothy and has him circumcised because they're going to go to uh, like Jewish, you know, synagogues and stuff, and, and I think that, that's a faithful dude right there, like, uh, no, nah, I'm going to join a different team, you know, and then it's crazy because he, because when Titus comes on the team, Paul refuses Titus being circumcised to make a different point, a different context, and I'm like, you know, Timothy and Titus, that had to have been some stuff... Went back and forth between them two, you know, like Titus is like, you're a sucker, man. <laughs> you know, but, but they were both very faithful in, in the way that they planted churches. Paul sent Titus to the island of Crete, he says in his letter to him. The reason I left you in Crete was to appoint elders in every town and establish the church that way. And so Timothy and Titus, two young men that Paul invested in and used them to pl- like in a, in a major church planting movement. And so Timothy is very faithful. Timothy then is sent to the church at Ephesus. Um, sometime after they go there and Paul spends an extended period of time. He spends about a year and a half in Corinth and then sends a team to Ephesus, which both those cities were very pagan cities, very influenced both by like a hedonistic culture as well as a sect, like, a, like a, a very religious um, pagan culture. And, uh, and eventually Paul comes and serves there and a church planting there is a very extended period of time. And then Timothy pastors that church. And so um, Paul is writing to Timothy to encourage him, equip him, train him as a pastor in this place that's been very difficult for him to minister um, because the, the, the labor of the pastor is not easy. It's not easy, and so he's encouraging him. And in the encouragement, there's instruction, there's admonishment, but there's, there's this one in this text we're going to look at. Um, I want to I hone in on four things that he tells Timothy to do. Four, like four things that he calls him to that will sort of define what the man of God is. And so this, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, this section is entitled, um, in this, you know, in, in the in chapter breakdowns in, in the ESV, it's entitled, Fight the Good Fight of Faith, Fight the Good Fight of Faith. And, uh, and it's a very well-known phrase or line from Scripture. And so we'll pick up in verse 11, 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is the word of the Lord. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word, the preaching of your word, the hearing of your word. For our good and our holiness and for your glory, in Jesus name, amen so i want to I want to just walk through the text and so in the in the in the beginning of this text um there 's if you read through the whole of First Timothy and especially the, the chapter leading up to this, what you 've got is a pretty strong comparison and, and comparison is, is is sometimes a positive thing sometimes it 's a negative thing. Guys around here are always jawing about who 's better, LeBron James or Michael Jordan, or you know you 'll hear guys talking about uh, you know, like Chevy versus Dodge, Chevy versus Ford, Dodge is usually not in that conversation, it's usually Chevy and Ford, and they're, you know, they're doing this, and we'd probably get a 50-50 split if we, you know, if we went down the middle, Um, Glock pistols versus everybody else, you know, like, Glock's better, all Glocks are stupid, they don't fit in my hand, and I'm like, well, you're wrong, it's okay, you can learn to shoot one day, and then you can use a Glock, you know, so, like, but, like, (laughs) so, so like, but, like, there's always comparisons, you know, like, like, but comparison can also be a really bad thing, like, A lot of times something we'll see with uh, students is you've got like this super, super, super kid and then a a sibling who struggles to find an identity and sort of lives in the shadow of that kid. And so sometimes comparison is a very negative thing. You, You could also, like comparison can drive you to a place of discontent in a positive way. So like when Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, there's a good comparison where I can take someone who's older, more mature in the faith, and I think this is important for us as men to set men sort of in front of us, not on a pedestal, but in front of us in the journey and say, there's a man I can strive to be more like. It's a healthy thing. That, that's a biblical thing. And so that's good comparison. But then to take a man that maybe has a life that I wish I had, but that God is not assigned to me. Maybe he makes a whole lot more money or he lives in a bigger house or he's, you know, got whatever, like there, comparison can become a negative thing that drives me to discontent. So, so we have to be careful with comparison, but comparison can be a good thing. So in this text, what Paul's doing is he's comparing Timothy. He says, but you, but, that's a big word. When you see the word but, like, like this, you say, saying, what we just said is one thing, but what I'm going to say to you, and he says, but you, O man of God. And he calls him a man of God, which is a very powerful, powerful phrase and you, to, to imagine being referred to by the Apostle Paul as a man of God is a very powerful thought. In doing this, he's pointing out the difference in Timothy over against the other leaders in that area. These men have been characterized in the previous text by lying, deceit, selfishness, the spread of poor and false doctrine, unloving leadership, vanity, insincerity, demonic influence, false religious piety. And most recently in the previous verses, greed, money lust, conceit, and a completely combative and argumentative spirit. So 13 things he's just gone through and he's said, like he's described these godless men and he's now going to say, but you, O man of God. And so he's creating a contrast. He's comparing him and creating a contrast. In contrast to the leadership that, that, that's there in the church at Ephesus, Timothy is described in the fewest of words. To be a man or a woman of God, to be called that is the greatest yet simplest description I could ask for and work towards. The contrast is from a complicated, selfish position to a clear testimony lived out. In the Old Testament, God would often describe his prophets as man of God. Timothy is being semantically compared with Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Isaiah, and even King David. David and Moses were considered the deliverers of Israel, sort of messianic prototypes that pointed to Christ. A man of God prophesied one time against the priest Eli that his sons would die and the priesthood would be taken from his family. It's the greatest honor anyone could have bestowed on them and most coveted among pastors and elders. The church needs men of God who can be defined and summed up as a man of God to lead. In 1 Kings 13, a man of God speaks against Jeroboam, the king, and gives a prophecy that is ultimately fulfilled, and then on his way home, he disobeys the Lord and is killed by a lion as a judgment from God. God expects the man of God to be faithful in every way, and I brought that story out because I'm thinking, okay, it's like you can be faithful, 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 but then you can be unfaithful like that, and so the man of God is a man who's not perfect, but is faithful. There's a difference between like perfection and faithfulness because Jesus is perfect and the scripture calls us to that sort of perfection and holiness. And we're, but we're, we know that in this fallen flesh and in this fallen state that we're going to make mistakes, we're going to fall, we're going to fail. And the scripture is very clear that, that there are going to be struggles and that sometimes we're not going to win the day. But faithfulness even in failure is something that can always be uh, like like uh, a characteristic of the man of God so faithfulness is something that's going to be characteristic of the man of God people will often tell me uh man you're 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 strung out you're you're high strung you're wired hot you know like you're and 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 sometimes someone will say and I don't know if you ever heard this somebody will say man you need to relax you need to take it easy like like uh especially when it comes to parenting you know I'm, I'm, I'm like I mean, I want to protect them bear cubs until it's time to turn them into the wild. You know what I mean? Like I, want to, like, I want to find that balance between put them in the bubble and then send them out. At some point, they got to be sent out. You know, it's strange when a 25-year-old is, is still sort of being held back. A 20-year-old is being held sort of in a, in a more adolescent state. But there's a point where that needs to happen. And so finding that balance can be very difficult in terms of sending them out. So a lot of times someone will say, man, you got to relax. Like I got a 16-year-old son who's got a flip phone. Okay, well, that's cool. That's how we're going to roll. All right, because I'll tell you this. I will tell you this. 11,000 teenagers will come through this ministry this year. And every single, I'm saying without exception, every single student I talk to, their phone will be a problem. Pornography, the way social media is used. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't give your kid a flip phone, you're a bad I'm not saying that I'm not saying that I'm not uh, um, technologically savvy enough to manage it. Most dudes can, but you need to pay attention to what's on that phone. You need to have that sucker shut down in the evening. You need to have rules of engagement so you put you put that thing on the kitchen table and say you can be on your phone, your tablet, your computer, whatever at the kitchen table. It's a house rule in our house, only at the kitchen table and so and that goes for everybody and so like people say, man, you need to relax and I'm like if you relax, a lion will eat you. I read it in the book. You know, like, like I ain't gonna relax. I ain't relaxing in this life. I will relax for eternity. Like it's gonna be like, whoa, it's gonna be awesome. Like we're gonna have conversations. So many dudes here I ain't met, ain't shook your hand, ain't hugged your neck, and I, like, I'm like, that's cool. We got about a billion years as like the intro. Right. Okay. So it's going to be good, and we're going to relax. And you hear people say, "I'll," you know, I, "What's that saying? I'll sleep when I die, or whatever. Rest when I die." And I'm like, "Well, like, yeah." So, like, but I can't. I can't let my guard down in this life. So, so as a man of God, I cannot take it easy. I'm not going to take it easy. And so then he goes on and he defines. And I want to give you these four things that define the man of God. Number one, the man of God is defined by what he flees from. What he flees from. What do you flee from? That's a question we should be asking ourselves. Do you run to sin or away from sin? Paul is telling Timothy to flee from the vanity, greed, and divisiveness that is so prevalent among those false teachers in Ephesus that he has addressed in verses 1 through 10. The man of God will be tempted with and attacked in the flesh by these things. It happens. Timothy needs to flee. Sometimes the most courageous thing I can do is to run away. To run away and flee from something. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us to flee sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 10.14 says to flee idolatry. 2 Timothy 2.22 says to flee youthful passions or lusts. A true man of God will spend his entire life running from and avoiding certain things. You'll never feel like, yeah, I've outrun it. I've won the day. These things are usually the very things that define false teachers and unregenerate people these are the things that enslave and keep people in darkness these are the tools and the weapons that satan uses these are the things that false teachers will even use their influence to obtain and so paul's drawing on that contrast so the question at this point for all of us is what am i going to flee from what am i going to flee from how, how am i going to deal there's certain sin that it's the easiest way to fight it is to run away the easiest way to fight it is to run away so what am i going to flee from and and the the story that for me and probably a lot of us immediately jumps out in the Bible of a man running away from sin. What do we think of? Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Okay, so he flees. And then when you contrast that with David and Bathsheba, right? David lingers. At, and it's the time of the year when kings go off to war. And what's David doing? He's in his PJs on the deck in the middle of the day, sipping tea or whatever he's doing. are you know, like, what are you doing? It just said this is when kings are supposed to be with their men in war. And so he's there. So he lingers and he falls into this sin that could have probably been avoided if nothing else, if he just run away. And we've all been there. We've, every one of us has probably got a story where we ran away and, and escaped and where we chose to stay and we fell. Chose to stay and we fell. Maybe it was pornography. Maybe it was a, an affair. Maybe it was, maybe it was almost an affair that went far enough that I have to deal with the shame and guilt but somehow God intervened and preserved me and said hey you should have run away from that. Maybe it was maybe it was a financial decision, maybe it was a season of rebellion but to, like there let me tell you something dudes, there is nothing wrong with running away from a fight. In fact Right, many of you took the, the, the combat pistol training this weekend, and one of the things, when you, the, the more instructors you train under, the more guys you work with, a lot of times, guys, one of, the, one of the first lines of defense is, can I get away from here without getting in a fight, right? Can I escape without engaging this enemy? There's times where there will be enemies that I've got to engage, and I've got to, man, I'll tell you, I've, like, I, I've got this uh, I've got this daydream fantasy. Y'all gonna think I'm a terrible preacher when I tell you this, but I've got this daydream fantasy where I like save the day in a convenience store by tackling some dude that's trying to give the, the clerk grief, you know? And so I was in the solo station down here the other day and, and, uh, and I, I was buying some, uh, some milk and, and I went home and my wife said, um oh you got to go back down uh can you run to the store and oh no I was bringing something to camp I had to come to camp I was coming to camp so I stopped and got fuel paid came to camp was here about 30 minutes had to go back to my house and my wife called me and said will you pick up a gallon of milk so I go back by the same store I walk in a little girl's name's Chelsea she's like well you missed it and I said what happened and she said crazy went down around here and I was like what happened and she said Literally you've been gone three minutes and the dude came in, he was all messed up. He started wrecking stuff. He came over the counter at me. I had to hit the panic button. I was all by myself. Luckily there was an officer close by. Police showed up. They arrested him. He's gone. If you'd have been here, you could have had your day, man. And I was like, ah <laughs> Man, that would have been awesome. Like anyway, so So there's like but but like if but but now imagine you're in a situation where where there is a potentially deadly encounter, and and there's a way you could just avoid it, right? And, and not even imagine you know if I continue on this street, I'm gonna crash my car because something has happened, and I and, and like I could have that foreknowledge somehow I could have like supernatural foreknowledge. You know, if I continue on this street, I'm gonna have a fatal accident or a very dangerous. Um, situation awaits. And all I got to do is turn and go this way, right? What I would do is I would go, I would flee. I would go away from that scene. I would avoid or flee. And so there's a time where I got to do that. And scripture gives us at least those three instances, flee sexual sin, flee idolatry and flee youthful passions or lusts. And I I immediately think of Paul's words to the Corinthians with a very, very uh, sensual, sexual, alcoholic society where he said to them, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Like, I, fleeing youthful lust, that's, that's just a matter of putting away childish things and becoming a man of God. Because if we're, if we're true to ourselves and we're honest with ourselves, all of us, there's still things that, that we struggle with in terms of temptation that we're struggling with when we're 16. Like, seriously? Do I still got to deal with this? Yeah, because you're a man. God wired you a certain way. And so learning, learning to manage and flee from certain things, that's a, that's, that's a picture of sanctification and maturity in my life. Second thing. He says, as a man of God is defined by what he follows after. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. If I spend my life pursuing these things, then I believe that through the Holy Spirit, I will grow in all of these areas. But the moment I begin to lose this focus, I will run toward those things that Paul has just warned about. You cannot run from one thing effectively without running To something that is able to save you from the very thing you are fleeing from. Let me read that again. You cannot run from one thing effectively without running to something that is able to save you from the very thing you are fleeing. The thing Timothy needs to run to, the things Timothy needs to run to, are the characteristics that will free him from the very list of things that the greedy, hedonist people of Ephesus were all guilty of. So what am I After what are you after the pleasures of this life are fleeting that momentary affair will be fleeting in its gratification But eternity and its glory that's forever. What do you want from life? What what will bring lasting pleasure? You know what will jesus will jesus christ in a personal relationship and obedience to him is the only thing that will provide you with lasting pleasure Jesus is the only thing that's going to fulfill you. Jesus is the only thing that will ever sustain and grow and keep you on course is your personal relationship with Jesus. So how do I pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentle? Just pursue Jesus. Just, just like fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author of your faith. He's the finisher of your faith. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. So fix your eyes on Jesus. See him on the cross. See the empty tomb. See him exalted and seated at the right hand of God. See him as the judge who's going to stand in judgment over you. There have been times in my life where I said, you are not have to judge me. You don't ever get to say that to Jesus because he is. Pursue him. Follow hard after Jesus, and that will define who you are. There's a story from Irish folklore. It's called The the Red Hand of O'Neill. Red Hand of O'Neill. It's a fascinating story that I read one time where, and it's it's there's discrepancy over whether or not it's a true story. I'm going to roll with yes. I'm going to roll with yes, all right, because it's a cool story. Where this was early, early in, this would be. Like before Ireland was established and before like what would become Britannia with the modern day, the modern day United Kingdom where you you would eventually have several nations that would come together. But there was this was a time when there were tribal states, city states. And so there was a there was a fight and a race to get to the island. Of Modern-day Ireland and claim it and so so multiple clan leaders were in this race to get to the island and they and so the deal that was made was the first man who touches the island has claimed it that's the deal so there's this race among clan leaders and chieftains and there's two uh, there's two ships that are approaching, and it, and, it, and it becomes evident to this chieftain named O'Neill that he's not going to get there first. So he takes out a sword, chops off his hand, and throws his hand onto the island. It lands on the island, and he claims Ireland for himself. I don't know if that's true. That's a cool story. <laughs> that's le- that, like that's legit, all right? So that, that guy, like good leaders, a little bit crazy, in a good way, all right? So like O'Neill chops up, and so you think like, Okay, what, how passionate, and, and my mind then goes to Jesus saying, if something's causing you sin, like your hand causes you sin, cut it off. Like, poke your eye, whatever you got to do. This idea of, like, fleeing from one thing and pursuing after something else with an abandon that, like, is almost indescribable in the human vernacular. Okay, so, so that's the picture that he's painting. Number three, he says a man of God is defined by what he fights for. What he fights for. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. We need men leading churches who fight for the things Christ fought for. The word for fight is agonizomai, which means to agonize, and, it, and it's reminiscent of Greek and Roman boxing matches. The consequences of losing in that culture could be harsh. A loser could have his eyes gouged out, or he could die in the match. Oftentimes, they would allow these fights to go to the death. They were brutal, oftentimes to the death. Gloves were similar to modern-day brass knuckles. They were fur-lined oxhide with iron and brass inlaid. And so, the, like, like the idea of a boxing match for us is, I watched that boxing match a little while back, uh, a couple months ago, with that big... A British guy, uh, Tyson Fury, and he fought uh, Deontay Wilder. Is that the guy's name? Watch that fight. It was cool. I like it. But at the end of the day, you know, those guys going to go home to their families. They're going to be down at the outback getting a steak afterwards or whatever. Like, it's, it's not, nobody's going to die here. There, there's, there are rules of engagement. There's a ref. There's a commission. There's certain rules. There's, they're like, like, going into the fight. There's drug testing. There's, there's like, weigh-ins, stuff like that. In, in this context, it, like, fights were to the death. So when he says fight the good fight of faith, the idea is fight to the death for these things. Like a man is defined by what he fights for, and we might then even say what he's willing to die for. I want to share with you real quickly six things that I recently shared with a group of college students. If you'll give me a second. It's going to take me just a second to pull this up. And so I recently shared this with a group of college students, and I believe that it's very important for us to think about uh, in our own lives, and this is uh, six things that everyone's got to figure out, is what I told them. Six things you've got to figure out. And, they, and most of these kids were, un- were not believers. T- talking to a group of predominantly unbelieving 18-, 19-year-olds, okay? Six things everybody's got to figure out. Number one, I've got to figure out what I'm going to believe in. What am I going to believe in? What am I going to believe in? Because once you figure out what you're going to believe in, you'll be willing to fight for those principles, those ideologies. Many of you served in the armed forces. Many of you, there are some of you who are currently in the armed forces. We have men that serve in law enforcement that are, that are with us right now. And what we have determined is that there is, there are certain principles, morals, and ideologies that I'm willing to, to, to fight for and die for. Okay. So what am I going to believe in? Because number two is what am I then going to potentially be willing to die for? And anybody here say, yeah, I'll die for my family. I'd die for, you know, like, I remember me and my wife was was dating this 26, This was about 26, 27, about 27 years ago. We're dating, and and, uh, that Robin Hood movie came out with Kevin Costner and Brian Adams' song, Everything I Do, I Do It For You. And I'm not a romantic dude. I'm not creative with romance. I I bought my wife a book this week on spiritual disciplines. I was trying to write in it. I couldn't come up with good stuff to say. I was like, man, I was just like, man, I like you a whole lot, love you even more. I'm glad you love Jesus. I hope this is a good book. You know, I, 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 I struggle with that. So, um but we get along great because she's kinda hardwired the same way. And so I mean, we're sitting there and uh I don't know, I was nineteen years old and I and I was like, Oh, that line in that song, that's what I'll do. That's the one I'll say. I, that, that guy he said, Everything I do, I do for you, I die for you. I boom, got it. Hey, I said, I waited for the right moment. We was eating fried chicken and we was catfishing. True story. Sitting on a sitting on a little dock on this little lake where I worked, and I said, Hey, now's a good time. I die for you. <laughs> she said, Huh? <laughs> I said, man, I just want you to know i die for you. She's she like, what are you talking about? I was like, I'm saying I will die for you. She's like, that doesn't make any sense. We're fishing, we're eating chicken. What are you talking about? You know, like, but, but, but what's dawned on me is, well, of course, like, we're, we're men. It's hardwired into us, that kind of sacrifice. But I'll tell you what's going to be a greater challenge for every one of us, to live four, five, six, seven decades Every single day, dying to myself for the good of this person and for the glory of Jesus. Not just what will I physically die for, but what will I, every single day, lay down my desires, my demands for. What, what, what am I, so what am I going to believe in? What am I going to live and potentially die for? Number three, what am I going to commit to? What am I going to commit to? Number four, what am I going to chase after? What am I going to chase after? Number five, what am I going to build on? What's the foundation of my life? And number six, how am I going to deal with the problem of evil and suffering? How am I going to deal with the problem of evil and suffering? So here's, here's this, like this, this, uh, this, this list of things that I share with these young people. And it's like when, when we're talking about fighting the good fight of faith, the idea is these principles need to be intact. Timothy was squared away as a man of God. This Paul's saying... Like this is who you are at one point he says to him remember your confession Don't forget you confessed you professed and so like like you squared away But there's a there's a critical need for us to have that foundation to be able to fight for things that matter The difference between knowing when to flee and when to fight is critical If I was in a building and it was on fire and I was in the middle of this thing and or a bomb was about to go off And I was in it. I would run away from that But in a professional fight, whether it's boxing, wrestling, MMA, both men are expected to stand and fight. They are doomed for defeat and failure at the hands of the judges if they run from their opponent. I'll tell you, I remember remember when I was in the sixth grade, there was a kid named Boy Pilkey. His name was Ernest, but everybody called him Boy. And Boy Pilkey was in the eighth grade and had a beard, pretty hairy dude. Uh, I don't know what was going on there, but I think there was some, some discrepancy in the birth certificate, all right? Some mountain folks, we do things a little different, and so I grew up on Highway 110 in Bethel, North Carolina, and Ernest Pilkey lived down behind the house there, boy, and he used to beat me up all the time, all the time, beat me up all the time. Like like that kid in Christmas Story, he my arm, so we all, like, be out there playing football in the cow pasture, and there was all, a bunch of us down there's a field, some fields down on the Pigeon River. We go down there and we play football. And it was a group of us. We ride our bikes. It was a gravel road. And so nobody lived right beside each other. We'd meet up every day after school. We'd play football. Well, me and Dwayne Mahaffey, we'd get in fist fights twice a week, but we was best friends because that's the way you did things in the 70s and the 80s, right? Like, we'd beat the snot out of each other. And when you're in the fifth grade, you ain't going to do no damage. Like, this is my best friend, Dwayne. All right, so <laughs> it was just fun, you know? Well, but I never enjoyed when when boy Pilkey mess with me, so I told my daddy, I was like, boy Pilkey beats me up all the time. I ain't busting my nose today. Like I'm sick of it. And he's like, well, you got to figure out two things: is can you run away from the situation, and can you fight smarter? And I was like, oh, okay, oh yeah, okay. So I remember I devised a plan. And I didn't run it by my dad until later. But what I did was we were playing football. And one of the things Boy Pilkey would do is he'd say, "Give me that football. I'm taking it home with me." I'm like, "This is my football." He's like, "Yeah, but it's gonna, it's it's going to be at my house, and i we'll we bring it back out tomorrow." I was like, "I got tired of giving him my football, so he beat me up and take my football." All right? So we're, I remember we're standing down there, and and I said, "You want this football?" He said, "Yep." And so I said, "Here you go." And I threw it straight up in the air like that, and he goes like this to catch it, and I tattooed that sucker right on the bridge of the nose, hard as I could. Just I mean, just like. It's as hard as my 75-pound self because you throw like, to off, you know, like haymaker. All right, so whoop, whoop. It didn't even knock him down or nothing. Just, I remember his head kind of rattled, and he's like, and he's bleeding, and he's, he comes after me. All right, well, he's also a faster runner than me. <laughs> so I knew I couldn't make it home, right? I knew, there ain't no way I'm going to get home. Boy's going to catch me. So what I did, there was a a patch of laurel just close to my house. And and so I hid. The Cherokee Indian Reservation is not far from here. And and you can buy these. Some of you as little boys, you had these. They're bamboo spears with a rubber tip. I remember having one of those bamboo spears. I laid that sucker in the bushes. I took off running. (laughs) I look back. Here comes boy. Plan's working like a charm. Dove into the laurel and grabbed uh, uh, that bamboo. And when boy came around the corner, I broke that sucker over his shins. Well, pow, bam. He hit the ground like that. I got up, ran to the house, locked the door. The next morning at the school bus stop, he beat me within an inch of my life. And I grinned all the way to school knowing, but yesterday I got you, son. I got you good. <laughs> like, 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 that was a good one, you know what I mean? Like, and, and I think, so, like when it comes to fighting the good fight of faith, I think it's important to understand, like, it's not like a single battle that ends the war. Like it's gonna, you, it is a constant fight. And sometimes you got to think, how can I fight dirty? How can I fight smarter? How can I fight better? But what are you fighting for? Your family, your holiness, greatest gift that you give to your family is your personal pursuit of Jesus and your holiness. And so what am I gonna, how am I going to fight for those things? In Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, God instructs the first man, Adam, who until we're regenerate, is our representative. In other words, until you're a Christian, Adam's the guy that represents you. You're a son of Adam. And God says to him, I'm going to put you in a garden, and I want you to work it and keep it. And the word keep means to protect. It means to protect. You think about how we protect our houses physically with locks and deadbolts and, and, and firearms or whatever. You know, making sure you live in a decent neighborhood. Whatever it is, you know, you've got a big dog. But we're working to protect those. That we're entrusted. with. Last night, so my wife... And, uh, and my girls, uh, so I got one girl at Southeastern and two girls and my little mad dog Moses, or they went camping last night. So they're out of the house. They're camping. Like, well, you got to be strong. We're going to go camping for the weekend. So they're out camping. So last night I'm home by myself. Uh, I mean, I'm home with just my oldest son and he's down in the basement. He's got like a little man cave in the basement. So we're pretty far apart. And I woke up at three in the morning this morning and something was moving around in the house, you know, like, and it was like, and I thought that's sounds like an animal. And, but, you know, you wake up, you're kind of hazy. At first, I was kind of freaked out. I'm like, something's in here. And then I realized it was a squirrel. My roof is like an A-frame pitch up there. And there's a squirrel going up and down between two of the rafters. I was so mad. But I was like, but I'm also real sleepy. And I'm not going to kill that squirrel tonight. But I will kill that squirrel. (laughs) All right, So he will die. He's going to die. And so like... I remember kind of drifting off to sleep like, <laughs> go ahead, enjoy it, enjoy it right now, have a good time, because your days is numbered, and you know what I'm saying, like, we're going to have squirrel dumplings here in about 48 hours, and so, like, there's times when you think of fighting, too, where it's like, so, so we saw, like, you got to fight smarter, think it through, but there's other times where it's like, today's not the day today's not the day to fight that battle. I need to be stronger. I need to be wiser. I need to grow. And so there's times where uh, like we fall back into that idea of fleeing or avoidance because I'm not in a position to fight right now. And so finding that balance between fleeing and fighting is critical. And so, but, but he says that third in that third line, that the man of God is defined by what he fights for. And we need to know what we're fighting for. And number four, the last one the man of God is defined by what he is holding on to. He says, take hold of eternal life. Paul reminds Timothy of his calling and his, his response to the calling. What are you taking hold of in your life? Are you taking hold of Jesus? Listen in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Jesus made the good confession in the presence of the man that in that moment held at least in In This world held his destiny in his hands. Now we know Jesus told us ain't nobody takes my life from me I lay it down. I'm in charge. But in that moment, Jesus showed us what this looks like His testimony before Pontius Pilate was the good Confession and he says to keep the commandment unstained and free from Reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has called us to eternal life But theologians will speak of a tension in scripture that many of you have heard your pastor talk about It's the already not yet tension. Have you ever heard that? There's certain aspects of this that are already here Like there's certain things i'm already called to there's certain responsibilities that I already have There's certain benefits of my relationship with jesus that are already mine But then there are certain things that are not yet a reality There's certain things that 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 i'm working knowing are waiting for me. Like there, there is an aspect to my walk with Jesus that is eternal in nature. That when I'm with him and I see him and I behold his face and I see him as he is, that I, I have the opportunity to hear him say, you did good boy, you did good. That should motivate us. That should motivate you. If you're a man, that should motivate you. You're my boy, you're my son. You did real good today. Like at the end of the day, I want to hear those words. At the end of my life, I want to hear that. I want to hear him say, what you fought for mattered. What you pursued after mattered. And you know what? When you ran away from this or that or the other thing, that was the right thing to do. You screwed up. You're a knucklehead. In fact, you're an idiot. But man, I love you. And because of what Jesus has done for you, like the blood of Jesus cleanses you and his righteousness is given to you. And so you're one of mine. And we're going to do this thing called eternity and it's going to be awesome. And I'm going to look at him and I'm going to see him exactly as he intends to be seen. Like, like literally all of his glory radiating. And I'm going to be with him. I'm going to be with him. I'm going to take hold of eternal life, but I'm going to take hold of it right now. Right now is when we do that. Right now is when the battles rage. Right now is when I pursue Jesus and holiness and I fight for everything that matters. In Romans 12, chapters, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that very familiar text where, where Paul says, uh, is writing to the, the church uh, in Rome. And he says, I want you to present yourself to God, to Jesus, as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. And the word, like, to break that translation down, it's, which is just logical. And there's two components to what this looks like to take hold of eternal life that we can draw from Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it's this that, that my, my commitment to Jesus is defined by these two things. The first thing is this it's total commitment. If you are a halfway Christian, if you're committing 80% of yourself to Jesus, you are committing nothing to Jesus. A, A sacrifice was consumed on the altar in its entirety. That's the way it worked. Jesus was poured out in his entirety like he held nothing back And so for me my commitment to jesus what i'm fighting for what i'm pursuing after the eternal life that awaits me Is one that demands all of me and paul describes it by saying you're a living sacrifice All of you and so my commitment is total Again doesn't mean you're gonna get it right 100 of the time you're gonna mess up i'm gonna mess up But i'm gonna commit Completely to Jesus, and the second thing he says in Romans twelve one two is, and that's logical. It's your reasonable service. In other words, that only makes sense. What other kind of commitment would you have to Jesus? What other kind of commitment would make sense? Like what other other kind of negotiating relationship would I have with God? He's like, that's logical. So brothers, we commit in our entirety. It's a logical thing to do, and and we let our actions in terms of what do I flee from. What do I run to? What do I hold on to? And what do I fight for? And, and, and like, those are the things that are going to determine who I am as a man of God. And the scripture breaks it down because God's like, these are dudes. They're not, they're not real complex. God's like, I made them this way on purpose. They're not real complex. Pretty simple, right? I'm not that hard to figure out. My wife, she don't have no trouble figuring me out. She calls it every time. I know what you're thinking right now. What? Ah, she got it right again. <laughs> It's not that hard to figure out. God breaks it down. He makes it pretty simple for us. He's like, here's these four things. Do this. Be a man of God. We can do this with the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the help of brothers. And in conclusion, verses 15 and 16, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to elaborate on the conclusion. I'm going to simply read the conclusion as a benediction to the sermon. Which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, And Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.